Amen. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles one more time, maybe one last time, to Genesis chapter 1. We are, I think we're going to conclude the series on authority tonight. Uh, I can't see coming back in two weeks. Like I said, there's no service next week because of the Christmas holiday. Next Wednesday, I mean. And I can't see coming back two weeks from now and, and finishing up, but you never know. So I'm just going to say, I think this is the last service in the series. Verse 26, and God said, speaking of the creation account, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. The word subdue means to bring it under your control. And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. I'll say it one more time, in this series at least. It is an undisputed fact that man was created for one and only one purpose. For one purpose that's identified specifically, and that is to have dominion over the earth. Now, if we look at the creation account, we have to recognize that there are a lot of details that are given to us about God's creative ability and God's creative works. And I think a lot of times people focus on the fact of um, God's power to bring things into being and to, to create something out of um, well, out of chaos, I started to say out of nothing, but it wasn't. There was nothing. It wasn't that nothing was there. It was that it was in chaos. But I want you to back up with me to verse two, because in speaking of the um, creation account, well, we better start in verse one, I guess. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. The word "was" is the word "become" or "became." To become or, or became. The Bible says in Isaiah 45 that God did not create the earth without form and void. He created it not in vain. So something happened between the original in the beginning creation and verse 2 where we pick up the, the, uh, the reestablishing of the earth or the recreation of the earth. We don't know exactly what that was. The Bible gives us a couple of hints but nothing that we're... Uh, not enough information to build a doctrine on. At least that I'm comfortable with building one on. But notice it says, And the earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Notice the Spirit of God is there. Verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. I want you to notice something. In the, in the whole of the creation account, the emphasis is not on the power of God for creation, but the word of God that produced results. Notice the spirit of God was there, but until the word was spoken, nothing was done. Now, a lot of people in the body of Christ seem to, to uh, emphasize the pursuit of God's presence. And thank God for that. I don't mean to criticize that. But some of the very people that, that emphasize the pursuit of God's presence give little attention or place little significance if any to the speaking of God's word 
But folks, the earth was created by the word of God. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean the Holy Ghost didn't have a work in it. It didn't mean that the Holy Ghost, the word of God didn't put the Holy Ghost to work to create the things that, that were spoken. But the emphasis is on the word. Ten times in this chapter it says, and God said. Ten times it says, and God said. Now, you know as well as I do that that's not necessary for us to realize that the earth was created. It could just very easily have said, and God created this, and God created that, and God created the other. But it says, and God said, and it became, or it was done. The emphasis is on the speaking of the word. So now we see that the last thing that he creates is man. And he gives them authority, dominion and authority over, over all the earth. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth belongs to the children of men. So here man has authority. Verse, uh, or chapter 2 tells us specifically the, about the creation of man where God formed Adam of the dust of the earth. He didn't create him from nothing. He took, him, took the dust of the earth or the, the dirt of the ground and formed him like we would consider forming uh, something with clay. And then it says, I believe it's in verse 7, he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. He breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. So I'm going to say it this way, and I hope you understand what I mean by it when I say it. Adam was created by the breath of the life of God. When he breathed into him the life of God, it was the life of God that was the source or the origin of his life. It wasn't the physical body that God had fashioned, because once God fashioned that, it was dead. It was ready, prepared to be used, but it was dead until God breathed into it. Now... I'm not sure exactly how to read that verse or how to translate that verse. It could mean one of two things. It could mean God breathes like you would blow out a candle and life came into him. Or it could be that God spoke into his face. Either way, the life of God was what was transmitted into the body of man and man became a living soul. The origin of man's life was the life of God. The origin of man's life, the origin of man's words was the life of God. The origin of man's intellect was not what he thought or what he learned or what he experienced, but was the life of God. Now think about what that means. If the life of God is the source of his existence, it's the source or the origin of his life, it's the source of the origin of his words. That means every word that he speaks is spirit and life. He could have said the same thing that Jesus said in John six sixty three: The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Adam was incapable before the fall. Adam was incapable of speaking anything other than the source of his existence, which was the life of God. I'll go a step further. Since the life of God was... The source of his existence, God's very person and presence within Adam. Every word God, every word that Adam spoke was the word of God. Are you with me? That has to be true. 
Well, things changed when sin came upon the scene. We know that uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that now Satan is the god of this world. doesn't mean he's the god of the earth. Thank God for that. He doesn't have unlimited power or authority. We know that everything the devil does is to kill, steal, and destroy. If the devil had authority over all the earth, then he would just do things to kill, steal, and destroy everybody at once. But he can't. So he doesn't have ultimate authority. I think we've mistakenly given him more credit or more... Well, giving him more credit for ability that he doesn't have. But he does have a measure of authority. He does have a measure of, of leeway to do his work through deception, lies and deception. It literally says that Satan is the God of this world, meaning God of this age. He's not the God of the earth, and he's not the God of this earthly system. The earthly system was designed as the kingdom of God in operation. God designed the earth to operate just like heaven does. I believe that that's the reason why so much emphasis is placed on God creating the world through words. Because that's how heaven works. That's how everything related to God works. The Bible says that God does nothing but, but that he shows it to his prophets first. Now why is that true? Why does God not do anything except he shows it to his prophets first? Because the prophets were the mouthpieces of God. God reveals it to the prophets so the prophets can speak it so that God can bring it into existence. It's the way God does everything. Well, now sin comes on the scene and we see that things change. Their eyes are opened when they disobey God and eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. Their eyes are opened and they see that they're naked and ashamed. Well, something's happened because they didn't all of a sudden have clothes fall off of them. Something happened that caused them to not only see their physical condition, the circumstances of their physical condition, but they felt something about it too. They were ashamed. Shame was a feeling that they hadn't experienced before. In other words, they've got a new source of information. This source of information is not the life of God that's within them. If the life of God within you was that which caused you to see whether or not you were naked and whether or not you should be ashamed, then they would have already experienced that before the fall. But now they've got a new source of information. James chapter 3, we've looked at this during the series some, but I'll remind you that James chapter 3 tells us about the tongue, how that it's a poison, a deadly poison that no man can tame. It's set on fire of the course of hell. Well, that's not the way God created it. God certainly didn't create it as set on fire by the course of hell. He just certainly didn't create it as something that no man could tame. And as long as the life of God was the source of Adam's information and therefore the source of his words, the source of his actions, he had control of his tongue. But James is telling us that only by the power of the Holy Ghost within now can we tame the tongue. So at the fall, I think it's a fair thing to say that man lost control of his tongue. No longer are the words that he's speaking spirit and life. No longer is he speaking the word of God. And folks, I would submit to you that everything from the fall forward in time, as recorded in the Bible, is God trying to get his word back in man's mouth. 
It's the whole purpose for the covenants of the Old, Old Testament. Now, God gave man authority on the earth, but God is still the possessor of the earth. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Well, that means God's still the owner because he's the creator. But he gave man authority, meaning that God does not intervene unless something takes place by the authority of man that alters God's end game or God's ultimate plan for the earth. The most notable uh, example of that would be the flood. The Bible has already recorded for us what God said that the earth would be at the end. He's already declared and decreed this is how things are going to be at the end. But man, through his wickedness, was detouring God's plan. God saw that the whole earth was full of wickedness, and his plan, that which he spoke, his words that, that cannot be broken, his words that cannot lie, were about to be altered or detoured. So he had to come in on the scene with the flood to get the earth back on track for his word to come to pass. But even then, he didn't do it without putting a man on the earth to preach for a hundred years about the impending danger and the opportunity to be saved by the ark. But the earth was destroyed by flood. And then we see that God, who because of sin coming in on the scene and wrecking his plan, and again, I'll, I'll state it in summary, I believe it's fair to say that God's ultimate plan for the earth was for man to rule the earth by speaking God's word. And that's what changed at the fall. So God's now locked out from his man. He's no longer the source of man's intellect. He's no longer the source of man's words. He's no longer the origin of man's life. Spiritual death is ruling and reigning over mankind. His words are words of death, not words of life. His words are the words of the enemy, the evil one, not the words of God. Because that's the only source of information he has available to him any longer. His spirit has been locked out. His spirit has been, the life of God within him has been replaced by spiritual death. So God comes on the scene with Abraham. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1, now the Lord had said unto Abram, notice his words precede anything that takes place in the story. The Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show you and I will make of thee a great nation. Here's God making a deal with Abraham. Go where I tell you to go and I'll make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curses thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Now, what's God's promise to Abraham? To make him a great man. To bless him in name. To bless him in children. To bless him in in finances. To bless him in authority or influence here on the earth. God's word to Abraham was designed that through obedience, 
Abraham would become a great man of authority and influence. Abraham believed God and departed. We see some of that coming to pass in the next chapter, chapter 13. Verse 2, and Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. Now, if we follow the the life of Abram, we'll see that there were several times that God appeared to him and spoke to him. He said in chapter 13, verse 15, well, verse 14, the Lord said unto Abram after that Lot was separated from him. You remember the story, they got two... Their goods were too plenteous, and so the servants started fighting among themselves. Lot's servants fighting with Abraham's servants and vice versa. And so they separated. Lot chose the city of Sodom to go in, and Abraham went the other way. After the, and the Lord said to Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then thy shall thy seed be also numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. It's interesting to me that this didn't happen until Lot separated. The implication, that, to me at least, is that it couldn't take place. God could not pre- reveal his plan and purpose for Abraham in the next step until Lot was separated. Because the promise wasn't to Abraham and Lot. Now Lot benefited from the promise up until that point. But then things go pretty south pretty quickly for Lot. The next chapter, chapter 14, tells about how that Sodom, the city of Sodom was raided by a number of enemy kings. And Lot and all of his family and his possessions were taken. And Abraham gathers the servants of his house and went, goes out after him and, and uh, uh, makes a guerrilla raid against the, the five enemy armies. And gets back Lot, gets back all of the possessions of Sodom and, uh, and, and slips away. And he's met there by Melchizedek. Now let's read the story of Melchizedek real quickly. Because here again it's a progression. The original promise that God made didn't come to pass all at once because Abraham wasn't aware of everything God meant for it to include I believe the same thing's true for us and we get so impatient I, I get impatient I won't talk about you but I, I certainly had to deal with this throughout my life there are things that God spoke to me about early on and man I thought okay this is it praise God I've got the word of God the word of God cannot change the word of God cannot be altered things he spoke to me are going to happen so I figured it happened by next Thursday well some of those are still waiting to be realized and I think a lot of the reason for it is because we're not in a position with the knowledge that we need in some cases the knowledge to exercise the faith that it takes to bring those things into being so God shows you little by little step by step progressively so it says in um, Abram's coming back from the, from the defeat of the enemies. Verse 18, chapter 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now we have no idea where this guy came from. We have no idea who he was. Could have been Jesus, a pre-incarnate 
appearance of Jesus, but it could have been somebody else. We really don't know. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoestring, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say that I have made Abram rich. Now, as I said, Abram is learning more about God, who he is, and what his plan is, and how he works, step by step, little by little, year by year. And by the time he gets to the end of chapter 14, Abram has come to the place where he values the blessing of God to such a degree that he doesn't want anybody else to get involved with it. He doesn't want, meaning he doesn't want anybody else to, to have any reason or any claim to say, well, part of what he's got is what he took from us. So he wouldn't take anything. Not a thing in the world. Now notice God's reaction to that attitude. When you put God first and only God first, notice what happened in chapter 15. After these things, that's significant, folks. There's a connection between these two things. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and this steward in my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heavens and tell the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give, it, give unto thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Then God gives him instructions to make a covenant. The splitting of a, of a, a cow and the separating of the pieces and so forth. And uh, in verse 18... It said, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Gergesites and the Jebusites. In other words, the land that encompasses all these people, the land and the people themselves and the spoils of all these tribes are yours. Now, what's God's intent? Well, we know God's original intent was that he would dominate or be the dominant factor, the dominant influence in Adam or mankind's life. Well, does God's intent ever change? He said of himself, I'm God, I change not. So from the beginning, he wanted to be and was until Adam fell. The dominant influence, the source of man's intelligence, the source of his experience, the source of his words, the source of his thoughts. He's never wanted to be anything else. He'll never want to be anything else. 
And if he wanted that for Adam, we know he did because that's the way he made him, then that's what he wants for you and me too. But it's an uphill battle for us now because we've experienced spiritual death. The world has experienced spiritual death. So here again, God is trying to make a covenant, and his covenants are always based on his words. Because he's trying to do the same thing that he did with Adam, and that is he's trying to get his word into into man's mouth. He's trying to get man through the hearing of his word and the obedience of his word and the acting of his word to become his word, God's word to become man's word. Skip with me now over to chapter 17. We'll skip the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Verse 1, chapter 17. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. It's 24 years since Genesis chapter 12. He was 75 years old when he left Ur of the Chaldees. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face as God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shalt thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. God's changing tenses. For the first time, now God is saying something's already been done regarding Abraham everything up until this point is look at the stars of the sky and uh, well first he said I'll make your seed as the dust of the earth then another time he said look at the stars of the sky and tell me if you can number them so shall your seed be future I'll make my covenant with you and you and your seed will inherit this land and all the people that live in it and the spoils thereof and so forth but now he's talking about something that's already been done now, what changed? God's intent didn't change. His intent was revealed all along. What changed? Well, Abraham didn't change. He's got a new name, but that's because God gave it to him. What changed? The revelation of God's word. Now God is speaking the word, not a new word, not a different word, but in a different way. He's telling Abraham, I'm changing your name because something's already been done. The difference between Abram and Abraham is the letter that represents God. God makes Abraham of his own name, of God's name, I mean. Now he's Abraham. Abram with God included or involved. Now, he's not just the father of nations. He's the father of many nations. I guess when God gets involved, things turn into many. Well, now Abram's at a place where in life where his body has changed. He's aged. So he questions God about how this could be and so forth. Verse 21, God answers about Sarah bearing a son. He says, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at the set time, this set time in the next year. In other words, he's telling Abraham, it may look impossible to you, but it's already done. 
It's done. It's decreed. It's declared. It's done. And Abraham believed God. Now, the, the next chapter, chapter 18, tells us about the destruction that comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, here's Abraham, who's operating in God's grace, according to the mercy of God, according to the covenant that God chose to make with him. God put, picked Abraham out of a, uh, picked Abram, before his name was changed, picked Abram out of all the idol worshipers on the earth. Nothing special about Abram. He's an idol worshiper just like everybody else. But God appears to him just out of his mercy, just picks him, handpicks him, and said, do what I tell you to do and I'll bless you. And Abram believed. Abram's become a great man according to the plan of God. He's become a great man in possessions. He's become a great man of influence. He comes across in his travels certain kings of different lands and the kings recognize how great a man Abram is. There's no looking down on this guy. He's accomplished or received everything that God has said except the child of promise. Now he's got the promise fulfilled in that respect according to what God said. He hadn't seen it yet, but God said, I've already done it. Then when God comes down and deals with Sodom and Gomorrah, here's another time when the wickedness of man is endangering God's plan and purpose for the earth. So he sees the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he sends two angels down to deal with it. But he first says, shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? Let me, rather than referring to that, let me read that. Well, I thought I was going to read it. can't find it. Oh, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? See, as far as God's concerned, it's already done. Now, Abraham's on the other side of this, not seeing the same thing God sees, not understanding the same thing God understands, without the life of God on the inside of him, without any understanding of the original creation and how that this, the life of God was the source of man's intelligence. There was, um, let me try to say it this way. It seems to me that before the fall, man had no capacity to disbelieve God. Because the life of God was the source of his existence. All he had in and of him, him meaning man, was the life of God. Well, how does someone of the life of God disbelieve God? That would be the same thing as saying, how does God disbelieve God? Adam is an exact duplicate in kind of God. Can God operate in unbelief? Well, then before the fall, neither could Adam. There's no, no possibility of Adam experiencing anything on the earth and saying, oh, wow, I see it works that way. But God said it worked the other way. Hmm. It's impossible. Every experience he had on the earth was exactly what God told him it would be. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there were things that God let Adam learn on his own, but none of them contradicted anything that God had told him. But since spiritual death came upon mankind, man's had an uphill battle. He's got to retrain his thinking. Adam had to renew his mind with the things that God said and the truth of the things that God said, even without the life of God on the inside of him. I think in some respects he had a harder time than we do. So God said, I can't hide it from him, seeing he shall become a great nation. In other words, seeing he shall be a man of authority and influence throughout the ages. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that, Abraham that which he has spoken of him. That's the only thing I can find where God identifies something that might be different about Abraham than anybody else on the earth. If there's a reason that God picked him, this is the closest thing we can come to, to finding, in my judgment. So then he told... Uh, Abraham what he was going to do but notice in verse 23 or verse 22 the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom but Abraham stood yet before the Lord and Abraham drew near and said wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked now folks everything we've seen about Abraham up to this point has shown his authority with men he's won battles he's defeated five enemy kings at least temporarily to get back Lot and the possessions of Sodom, the people in the possessions of Sodom. He stood before kings, and kings have shown him favor because of the greatness and the fact that they recognized that God was with the guy. He's had favor in, uh, with man. He's had operated in authority and influence much more than anybody else that we have record of in the Bible. But now he's exercising authority with God. Now he's exercising authority with God. Now what in the world would cause Abraham to believe that he has a right to say anything to God about God exacting judgment on a wicked city? The only thing I can come up with is because God said, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion and authority. Abraham has to say so, especially since he has a covenant with God. So you remember the story. He says, will God destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there's 50 righteous people there? God says, well, I won't destroy it for 50. How about 40? No, I won't destroy it for 40. 30? Works his way all the way down to 10. Now, there's no reason whatsoever that we should imagine or conclude that he couldn't have said, well, I know of one in his family, and that's Lot. Not sure how many they make up, but aren't they enough? And God probably would have spared the whole city for him. We don't know why he gave up at 10. I, 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 my assumption is he thought, well, there's several in Lot's family. Surely there's 10. I mean, of course there's 10. But of course there was. So now we see he's exercising authority with God. The greatness of this man, Abraham, 
because of a covenant that God made with him. Gave him authority with God. Not just authority in the earth, but authority with God. Now skip with me over to chapter 22. Abraham has had the child of promise. His son begins to grow. Verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Now, folks, I know a lot of people have trouble with this story and some of the ways that it's translated in the, in the English from the, in the Old Testament. But remember that God said, the Holy Ghost said through the Apostle James, that God can tempt no man with sin, neither can he be tempted with sin. The word tempt means to test or to prove. I I would prefer to use the word prove because there's a proving that takes place here. God says in the law that he gives to Moses, thou shalt not kill, literally thou shalt not murder. Murder is the shedding of innocent blood. A lot of people get hung up on that because they say, well, God said you shouldn't kill, but then he told Israel to kill to their enemies on occasions and wipe everybody out. Well, God never said thou shalt not kill. He said thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not shed innocent blood. But God gave specific instructions to Israel on several occasions to wipe out the heathen. Now, a lot of people have trouble with that. They think that God is just in the... Every now and then, he just has to satisfy his, his desire to kill people. But they don't understand that the wages of sin is death. See, no matter what we've done, no matter what we claim to do, there is no person, never has been any person, never will be any person that apart from Jesus has any right not to die. I think we take the life of God and the, and the fact that Jesus is our Savior way too casually. Because without Jesus, no matter how good a person you are or have been or ever might be, you're deserving of death. Every person that's ever been born on the earth since Adam is deserving of death because the wages of sin is death. Now, God said of himself, he said, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. I don't like it when the wicked die, he says. Well, then why does he allow it? Because man's operating in spiritual death. And therefore, he is a candidate for death itself, physical death as well. That's why when Jesus came to the earth and went to the cross, it says he condemned sin in the flesh. That was the first time that God was ever able to separate man from sin. Literally. Now, the Old Testament gave him an opportunity to count righteousness unto mankind because of the Old Testament sacrifices and Day of Atonement sacrifices and that kind of stuff. But until Jesus paid the price for sin and death itself, There was no possibility for man to literally, in reality, in actuality, be free from death. And until Jesus died for our sins and for the sins of mankind, you were still a candidate for, a worthy candidate for death. 
Everybody has been all the, all the time of the earth since Adam on. That's what's so significant about Jesus taking away the sin of the world. He took away the spiritual death of the world. For those who would receive it, those who do receive it, that spiritual death is done. It's wiped away. It's removed. But those who reject it are still just as much a worthy candidate for death as they ever were before Jesus came. So when he speaks to Abram and he says, he speaks to Abraham to prove him. He's doing two things. Certainly he's proving Abraham, but he's also proving the covenant. He's identifying just how far this covenant can go. You know as well as I do that in areas of business, if somebody's entering into a big contract or bidding on a big contract, they've got to prove their net worth or their ability to uphold their end of the contract before the bid's even considered. They have to pre-qualify even to bid. God's pre-qualifying Abraham for his ultimate plan. And not for the things that have already taken place. Abraham has proved himself worthy. He believed God and it was counted unto righteousness. But now he's going to enter into a whole new thing. And so it's going to take a different set of qualifications. Or a different degree of qualifications. Came to pass that after these things that God did prove Abraham and said unto him, Behold, Abraham. And he said, Behold, I am here. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him therefore a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. The literal rendering of this is offer him as a burnt offering. Doesn't tell him to kill him. Tells him to offer him as a burnt offering. Just a little shade of difference in the true in the the language, but the Indicate, or could indicate a different meaning. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of the, that God had told him. Then on the third day, he travels three days, the type of Jesus' resurrection. After three days, he lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto the young men, Stay here, while I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Please notice that Abraham said, We'll both go, we'll both come back. I would submit to you that Abraham is operating on a different type of experience than anybody ever has up to that point in time on the earth, with the exception of, Abraham, uh, with the exception of Adam before the fall. He has no natural experience that tells him that this will work. He just has a belief in God. But notice his words are not coming from his head. By that I just mean they're not the source. His life experience or his intellect is not the source of what he's saying. There's something else that he is determined to accept to act on and to speak 
that we would indicate would be an influence of God. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is at this point. There's an indication that he's got whiskers on his chin through one of the words that are used. So if that's the case, we might say that he's 16, 17 years old, something like that perhaps. Well, that that would mean if he is 16 or 17, then that would mean that God has been, that Abraham has been walking with God for 42 years. 25 from the time God first spoke to him at age 75. He has Isaac at age 100. 16 or 17 more would be 41 or 42. Abraham's been walking with God long enough to know who he is. So he says, you guys stay here. Isaac and I will go worship God. And return unto you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife. And then both of them went up together. Isaac spoke unto his Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Yeah, here am I. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? So he's done this with him before. They've offered offerings before. Isaac understands what should be. And what isn't? And Abram said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Now, I don't know that Abraham knew what he was prophesying. But literally, this is rendered. God will provide himself as a sacrifice. So they came to the place and he built the altar. Abraham bound Isaac, put him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord called him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was the ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. I want you to notice the way this is written. And said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, because thou hast done this thing, because the intent of Abraham was stopped only by the words of the angel, God says, It's just as good as done. In other words, he considered Isaac, it's already offered as a sacrifice. As far as God was concerned, Abraham had done it, even though the angel stayed his hand. Because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
Please notice the last part of verse 17. Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, here's what that means. To To possess the gate of your enemies, the gate is of the city where your enemy dwells. The city where your enemy dwells is not only his dwelling place, but it's the place that houses his possessions. So when the phrase is used, possess the gate of your enemies, the word possess means to control. You will control the domain of your enemies, the possessions of your enemies. Now that's something that God hadn't said to Abraham up to this point. He's told him about his seed is the stars of the sky beyond number and so forth, the land belonging to him and inheriting it and such. But notice he says, thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, let's fast forward a little bit and remember what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3. Who is Abraham's seed? Well, Abraham's physical seed are the Jews, the Israelites. But is that who God's talking about? In Galatians chapter 3, it says, Paul identifies In several places, Galatians 3 included, he says not all Israel is Israel. He says if you're Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, of course, Abraham doesn't know anything about that at this point. But does God? When God says your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies... Is God just talking about literal Abraham or literal Israel? Or is he talking about his plan to offer his son as a sacrifice for man? Well, it's told to him in the story where Abraham offers his son as a sacrifice, doesn't withhold his own son, his only son, only begotten son, if you will. So I think it would be irresponsible for us to think that he's just talking about Israel. He's literally saying, because you haven't withheld your son, now I know what the limits of this covenant can be. I can offer mine. And Abraham has already decreed that God would offer himself as a sacrifice or provide himself as a sacrifice. So he says, so where the Bible says, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise is he talking about? Folks, I don't know about you, but the land of Israel doesn't belong to me. The land between the river Euphrates and the Nile River doesn't belong to me. Does it belong to you? That's part of the promise to Abraham and his seed. That part's not mine. What part is mine? One of the parts that's mine is that I'll possess the gate of my enemies. What does that mean? Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 16. We'll close with this. Matthew chapter 16. Here's the story where Jesus asked the disciples who he is, who the people say that he is, and then asked them who they say he is. Peter answers and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is Matthew 16, 16. 
And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, in other words, upon the knowledge that he's the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, he's not through talking, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is he saying? Well, there's something about the promise that God made to Abraham after he offered Isaac. It's a different promise. It's a different aspect of the blessing of the covenant. Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. He'll control the possessions and the territory of your enemies. Well, if he's talking spiritually, which he must be, because it's a spiritual story, it's a type of what Jesus did for us. It's a type of what God did in offering his son for us as a sacrifice for our sins. So if it's a spiritual story or a spiritual type, then the enemy he's talking about is not the Philistines, it's not the Amorites, it's not the Hittites. The enemy he's talking about has got to be the devil. So if the promise is that the seed of Abraham, those which are Christ, are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If the promise is that the seeds of Abraham or the Christians will control the possessions of their enemies, then we need to know what the enemy's possessions are. Well, what are they? What's the domain or the territory of the enemy? Well, the only thing he has is through lies and deceit. But what did he accomplish through lies and deceit? Spiritual death, sin, sickness, and poverty, tragedy and destruction, and every evil work. So if those are the possessions of the enemy, and that's all he's got, folks, And what's the promise to the church? That we will possess or control the possessions of the enemy. The domain of the enemy through lies and deceit. You'll control sickness that attacks you. You'll control poverty when it rises up to stump. You'll control tragedy or destruction when it rises up. Now compare that to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16. Upon the knowledge that I am the Christ, the sacrifice, the God-given sacrifice for man, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the gates of our enemies? The gates of hell. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And, in other words, the keys of the kingdom of heaven will provide you authority So that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I like the Amplified on this because it says it this way. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And you will have authority to bind on earth that which is bound in heaven. And you will have authority on earth to loose that which is loosed in heaven. I like that. Because it shows us that heaven is the boundaries that we can exercise. 
In other words, let's say it this way. The kingdom of God as it operates in heaven can be realized as man's authority here on the earth. Let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the works of our hands. God's purpose has always been the same and that is for man to have authority and dominion through one and only one means and that is speaking the word of God. Remember in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus comes to the centurions, comes to Caesarea? And it says there was a centurion that came to him. He said, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. He says, Master, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. But speak the word only and my servant will be healed because I'm a man under authority. I'm a man under authority. Another way to say that is speak the word only because I understand authority. Jesus marveled and said, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. What kind of faith? The kind of faith that understands that authority is exercised through the speaking of words. All the centurion centurion needs is for Jesus to speak the word of God. He'll have it just the way God says it. Guess what? You can have it just the way God says it. Because you've been given authority in the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great plan that you've realized and revealed to us. Thank you that man has been given authority on the earth. It's never been rescinded. Your plan and your purpose has never changed. We do believe Jesus is the Son of God. The Christ, the God offered sacrifice unto us or for us, for our benefit. We thank you, therefore, that we have been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those keys include us speaking your word, Father, and Satan bowing his knee. So we speak your word, Father, and we say that we are the healed of God. Because Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. We say that the chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus. So we are prosperous. We are the blessed of God. We say that we are the righteousness of God. Because Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. And bruised for our iniquities. We say that everything we put our hand to prospers. And we say that our words set the limits and the boundaries for the work of the devil's lies and deceits to operate against us. Thank you, Father, that you've made us children of faith, like precious faith as Jesus himself. So just as Jesus said that the words that he spoke were spirit and life, that which we speak by your life within us are spirit and life too. And they bring about the same results. They carry the same powers when Jesus spoke them. We thank you, Father, for all the wonderful things that you've done for us. We thank you that we're free from the bondage of the enemy and from his influence. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us, for enduring throughout this never-ending series. I think it's ended now. God bless you. Have a great week.